Welcome to the weekly sermon podcast for Muncie First Brethren Church with Pastor Jim Garrett. This week we continue our series in the Gospel of John. Today we see Jesus call the first of his disciples. Andrew, Simon Peter, Philip, and Nathaniel all take up Jesus' call and follow. Here's Pastor Garrett. Well, we're ready to look at this new thing, Jesus being the real thing and being presented as such. And so it's very interesting for us to see how, how this unfolds. And we've seen it through the declaration of creation, God presenting Jesus as the word became flesh, dwelt among us, that when we put our faith in him, indeed, we have the right to be the children of God. What he says we are, we are. Just as the song said, we are his sons and daughters because he says so. You don't make that happen. You accept what happens through Jesus Christ, and that becomes the essence of our faith. And so then we see that unfold throughout the gospel at all kinds of levels. Some, sometimes in detail, sometimes it's, it's, it's just, it leaves a lot of questions, but we see Jesus presenting himself in line with what God has said is true in him. And so we've already seen all these statements about who he is, the, the word, the light, the word become flesh, the son of God, the Messiah, the lamb of God, the king, we're going to see that presented, the, and God himself, the creator, uh, as, a, as a part of the Trinity. All of these presentations, Jesus will now affirm throughout his ministry. And we'll start seeing him say things like, I am the way, the truth, the life. I am the door. I am the bread of life. I am the good shepherd. All of these things become then a, a, a total picture, the real thing. So when we left off last week, we saw that these two disciples of John were, as John again, it says, the next day saw Jesus coming. He says, look, the Lamb of God and these two disciples uh, follow Jesus. And, and it's interesting that, that, again, when you see the speculation about uh, the skeptic would say, well, they were just leaving one religion and going to another. Jesus just represented something new. And, and no, it, that's not the evidence at all. The evidence suggests that John knew exactly what he was saying. He wasn't presenting himself as something separate. He was presenting himself as something that was in the flow of what God had, was revealing through Jesus. And so he was always pointing to the one who would come, who would fulfill those promises, the one that would be designated and, and fulfill the Lamb of God. So his disciples left and they began to follow Jesus. We know one of those guys was Andrew. The other's not named, but it's very interesting, and I want you to think about this. It's very possible that the other disciple that, that was uh, first attached to John the Baptist was John, the writer of this gospel himself. And the internal evidence is very strong simply because we have details about John the Baptist in the gospel of John that we don't have anywhere else. We have times of day. We have, and even as we saw, remember last week, it was about four o'clock. And, and so was that when they first went with Jesus? My own feeling is that that's when they decided to stay with him the rest of the day, that they started the day with him. And at four o'clock, that's when he was, they were invited to stay. But regardless, we have details that just 
would, would be hard to understand without someone being close to the whole situation and all the circumstances and the events and the situations themselves. And so it, it's interesting to see because we know that, that in the midst of this spread of who Jesus is and, the, and him bringing followers along and those who will attach themselves to him, and the reason I use that phrase, that's what the word disciple means in, in the Greek. It, it's a word that means to attach oneself. That's how you were defined as a disciple. So there was this, this idea of being a follower, and, and, and lots of people were described as followers. Then there were the disciples who literally attached themselves to Jesus. Everything they did each day, each, all that they were, was defined by the activities and the movements of Jesus their rabbi. Then you have this further designation of apostle, which means then they're sent by Jesus, sent out by him to, to be those that, uh, that, that will carry that message. And so that's what we have being presented. We, we got through this section, um, starting with verse 35, and, and we're going to read the rest of the chapter without any breaks, and then we're just going to talk about some of the movements in there uh, within, the, within the text. So it says, The next day John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, or behold, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, Well, what do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Well, come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying, and they spent that day with him, and it was about four in the afternoon. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah, that is, the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John, which, or you will be called Cephas, or Cephas, which when translated is Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee, and finding Philip, he said to him, Follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? Nathanael said, Come and see, said Philip. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said of him, Here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. And Nathanael says, Well, how do you know me? Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And Jesus said, You believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You will see greater things than that. He then added, Very truly, or truly, truly, I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. That's the rest of, of John chapter 1. We find out quickly, and even as Jesus encountered John the Baptist and, and came upon him, we learn from John that 
that he didn't really recognize him. Remember, we, we read the account where, where God basically did a, a, a private miracle and told John that that's how uh, John the Baptist, how he would know what he was seeing and who he was seeing. That when he was baptized, the, the spirit like a dove would come and rest upon him. He said, the one on whom you see that happen, he is the one I have promised. And so John tells us that that's how his eyes were opened. He knew Jesus. He knew who he was physically. But to know who he was as, as the, the, the divine revelation of all that God had promised was revealed in that way. He needed to be brought to that place. We also see Nathaniel, who, when hearing that Jesus is from Nazareth, says, well, can anything good come from, you know, take, take your pick. There, what, what they suggest is that he also, being from Galilee, there were these little inner town rivalries, kind of like uh, Chicago and Green Bay or uh, St. Louis and everybody else or um, you know, you, you have those kinds of mindsets, and they said it's probably quite true that they were just, they had this disparaging view of, of neighboring towns or, or those that were close by. They kind of saw them as competitors. And so you have, you have this statement which represents a preconceived notion, a preconceived idea just of anyone coming from Nazareth, and therefore Jesus was just, and, and whether he held to that or not, we, we know that it was, it was his beginning perception. And when Philip found him, he said, well, why don't you come and see if anything good can come? We see Andrew going to, to his brother Simon, Simon Peter. He's the original rock, by the way, not Dwayne Johnson. I think Dwayne Johnson stole this from him. And, and that's literally what his name means is the rock. And that's what Jesus calls him, because, because it's going to be, and, and it's interesting to see how Jesus and, and God himself throughout the Old Testament, for instance, with Jacob and Israel, he understands, which by the way, it's very interesting in, in, this, in this exchange. When Nathaniel is seen, he says, truly an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. The word deceit there in, in the Hebrew would mean supplanter which is also what Jacob's name meant. Remember, Jacob was a deceiver. And one translation, it's, it's kind of a personal translation based on the text, actually says, behold a true Israelite in whom there is no Jacob. There is no deceit. What he says he means. And, and, and so they have come to know that this phrase means it's someone who speaks their mind, who might be characterized as being blunt, but truthful. And so when he was described that way, Jesus saw him coming, and Nathaniel knew that, that you know, he was kind of a no-nonsense kind of guy and was asking the question, well, how, how do you know me? And Jesus said something very interesting, not that he knew him, but that he knew about him and knew him in ways that Nathaniel didn't realize and, and, and the, the, again, gave kind of a personal miracle to say, I saw you before Philip ever talked to you when you were sitting under the fig tree. And whatever Nathaniel was doing, he recognized that Jesus indeed knew him. 
And so Nathaniel recognized him and, and put away those preconceived ideas and notions, which is always the battle. It's the battle in our age. I read an article uh, just actually this morning, but it was out this week, and, and it comes out of the United Kingdom, and they were talking about this Generation Z, the latest generation that's coming into adulthood, and said that we literally have a generation that is completely biblically illiterate. Not only do they have no working knowledge of the Bible, they have been told that any working knowledge of the Bible is to be dismissed. Anybody who claims a working knowledge of the Bible should be put into a category that represents this preconceived idea that it's foolishness. With that, back, with that being said, and with that backdrop said, this generation is very, uh, seems to be very open to pursuit, but you first have to convince them that it's worthy of their time and effort and energy. The challenges are great. Their level of acceptance is, is preconditioned. I would say that's true of millennials and Gen Xers and, and many of them as well, that there's this preconditioned idea about Jesus already being given, and it has nothing to do with the revelation of God through his Son, that he's the Lamb, that he's the Messiah, that he's the sent one. He is to be the object of their faith. That's one of the hardest preconceived ideas to overcome is the fact that, that Christianity is presented as an ideology rather than a person. So it's presented as an idea and a religion and your faith is, is, is shaped around doctrine. That's not what Jesus is presenting here. In fact, that's what I want us to see that floods off the pages, especially of the Gospel of John, is that Jesus doesn't present ideology. He presents himself. So that when he talks about truth, he presents himself to say, this is God's truth. When he talks to Nicodemus, a religious leader, and he wants to know about all these good things that he's doing, we know you must be a man sent from God. No one can do what you're doing unless that were true. Jesus pulls him into the truth of that by saying, Nicodemus, you have to be born again. He doesn't entertain the preconceived ideas or notions that Nicodemus brings to the table. He takes them to a new table. It's challenging for us because that's also the witness that we are called to give. To be aware of, of, of the preconceived ideas Kyle Eidelman wrote a book, uh, Not a Fan, and in it he contrasts those two concepts of Jesus. One is the idea of being a fan of Jesus where you kind of sit on the sidelines and you applaud and cheer, and, but you're not really involved. You're not really his. You just like the idea of, of, of maybe, uh, um, you know, getting all emotional and liking the, the things that are presented rather than Jesus himself. And he contrasts that picture with the idea of being a follower where you're actually on the field and you are following him, you're attached to him, and your life is determined and dictated by the fact that you belong to him. So that each moment, that becomes the filter through which you enter those moments. I belong to Jesus. I am his ambassador. 
I, 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 I see things from, from that perspective. I see the people around me from that perspective. And that creates a sharp contrast between just being a fan or being a follower. And so the book is always asking the question, are you a fan or are you a follower? When Andrew and the other disciple, and we'll, we'll, we'll presumably say that it might have been John, when they followed Jesus, I, I revisited Jesus' question to them, and I revisited their answer. So they called him rabbi, and this was very important to, to see, because I kind of made light of it last week. You know, is this the best thing you can come up with? But if you were to ask a rabbi where they were staying, in that first century culture, this was a sign of respect. I, I think a sign of respect where they were saying, will, they, will he let us be with him? You couldn't presume or assume that that would be the case. The rabbi had to decide whether or not those who wanted to follow him could actually follow. And so when they said, where are you staying? We just were kind of hoping we could be involved. And Jesus says, come and you will see. That was pretty important. I think more important than I, than I uh, uh, made it out to be last, last time we were together. It was a sign of respect on both ends of the conversation. Them saying, you know, it's pointless. If he doesn't want us to be where he is, it's pointless for us to act like we're going to go anyway. And for Jesus to say, the very, this, and this hit me square between the eyes. This, this is the, the most important conversation we can have with anybody who is asking what we believe, asking them to come and see. What are, we, what are we inviting them to, and what are we asking them to watch? Jesus presents himself. Philip, when later he says this to Nathaniel, is saying, well, come and see Jesus. Because that's always what's at stake when we talk about evangelism, sharing the good news, sharing it in the way that others will come to believe in who Jesus is. And regardless of whether we're talking about a Generation Z that has zero biblical literacy or baby boomers that, that have some working knowledge, wherever they are on the spectrum, God loves them and he's nuts about them. He wants them to see one thing. And this is where we will see those questions answered in places like John 6 and I'll say it's one of my favorites, but it's not for obvious reasons. But I like it because when the crowd is asking Jesus, tell us what we must do to do the works that God requires, Jesus answers very succinctly, very precisely, and he says there's only one thing that God requires, that you believe on the one he has sent. He follows it up with what it means to believe. You either come to me and understand that my body represents real food and real drink for salvation, or you have no life in you whatsoever. You cannot claim a life with God or a life from God if you don't have life through the Son of God. 
And so the rest of John chapter 6, and again, I'm getting ahead of myself, but I can't hardly help it. When you get to John chapter 6 and you see this long discussion, and at the end of that chapter, you know what it says? Many of those who were attached to him, many of his disciples turned their backs on him and they walked away because it was too hard to handle. And that's when he turns to the rest of the disciples and he says, are you going to leave too? And what does Peter say? Where would we go? You alone have words of life. You alone is what living is all about. And that's what we're confronted with. In a very small way, we've seen it in the passage we read this morning, that, that you first have Andrew first, right away the next day going and getting his brother Simon. Thank goodness for Andrew. We'll run across him later in chapter 6 and chapter 12. In chapter 6, he's the one that goes and finds the little boy that has the bread and the fish to feed the 5,000. The same crowd later in chapter 6 that will ask, when they're looking for Jesus, and Jesus says, well, you're looking for me because your bellies are full. I'm telling you to look for the bread on whom God has set his seal of approval. That's when they say, just tell us what we need to do. In chapter 12, he will also be the one there who will be seeking. There will be Gentiles who will come to Philip and say, hey, we just want to see Jesus. And Philip goes to Andrew and says, hey, this group wants to see Jesus. And Andrew says, well, let's go to Jesus. And he's the one that goes to Jesus and takes him to the group who's searching for the one called the Messiah or the Son of God, the Son of Man. Thank goodness for Andrews, who will just go and say, well, come check it out. Simon, we found him. Later we find Philip when Jesus goes to Galilee. It says that he, it's the only place here. And part of what we need to understand is that in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we see the official call of Jesus to his disciples to follow him. Many believe that this is preceding those calls, with the exception of Philip. Because John, remember, was the son of Zebedee with James, and they were fishing, and then Jesus says, follow me, I will make you fishers of men, remember? And they drop their nets, they leave, and they take off. And so most feel that this, these events precede that one. When they get to the place that Jesus says, come and follow me, they already know kind of who he is, but they haven't left their jobs, they haven't left families, they've not left their places. And whether or not that's true, I don't know, but this describes an event that you see Philip going to Nathaniel and saying, hey, we found the one that was promised, that Moses talked about, that the prophets talked about. And yes, he's from Nazareth and the son of Joseph and Nathaniel with his preconceived ideas about, uh, about Nazareth says nothing good can come from there. He's from Cana, by the way, which was a competing region um, in Galilee. And, and we learned that when we get to chapter 21, where that starts, we start filling in some of those blanks. We don't have Nathaniel mentioned in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Nathaniel seems to be a proper name, but we do think that he's probably Bartholomew, the disciple that's mentioned in those lists, mentioned in the same place, but Bartholomew is not a given name. It would be like a family name, Bar meaning son of, and then 
his, his father, which is depending on how you read it. But, but regardless, John here is giving us details of who, of who we are to follow and, and to be attached to and thankful for those who will go and say, come and see. It presupposes some very important things and, and, and implies that we know some very important things. We have to know the truth. We have to know where we are pointing. What does our lives say about what's important to us? To whom are we attached? Are we attached all the time or are we just casually attached when it's convenient? Who are we following? Are we a follower or a fan? Knowing that then, are we ready to say to those who ask, come and see? Have we examined the claims of Jesus so that when someone says, well, why do you believe in him? You say, well, you know, it's it's either he's got to be who he says he is or, or he was crazy. Listen to what he said about himself. He said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. He said, unless I have life in him, I have no life at all. That it's only through him that I know who God the Father is. And when we personalize those and say, those are the claims that I have to come to terms with, does he have the right to say those things? Those are his claims. And if so, then do I have the courage to believe? Do I have the humility to believe? We're not asking anyone to believe, as Jesus did not ask anyone to put their faith in a religion. He said, I need you to put your faith in the finished work of God. So that when even leading his disciples to that moment, he dies on the cross, he said, you don't understand now. He said that when, they were, when he was washing their feet. You don't understand what I'm doing now, but you will. This will have meaning. It will have fullness. So we have to know the truth. We have to be able to point to the truth. And when he says those things that life is in me alone, that I'm the bread of life, the way, the truth, and the life, are we ready to point to those claims? And three, then, to encourage that journey. What if you meet someone, they say, well, you know, I I didn't know he said that, but I'm just not sure. Well, Well, don't take my word for it. Go check them out. It's our way of saying, come and see. And then be ready to walk with them in that journey. Don't be afraid to say when, when they say, man, I, you know, I see that claim of his. I just don't know. That's pretty extreme. Say, I know. I know. So either he, you know, meant what he said or he died for nothing. And I just can't believe he died for nothing. Let, them, let that hang with them for a moment. Because then you can say, you don't believe he died for nothing, right? See, those claims that he made were rooted in this truth that God had already given. It wasn't in a vacuum. It was in the flow of, of this revelation, this desire for relationship. And I had to come to terms with the fact that God wanted a relationship with me. I don't understand why he loves me, but he's nuts about me. 
Well, how do you know he's nuts about you? Well, his son died for me, and he didn't ask me to clean up first. He did that while I was still a sinner. He then invites me to know the fullness of his love in spite of the dirt. No one else does that. That's why, and then you look at him and say, that's why I'm telling you it's not a religion. It's a relationship. Only through Jesus Christ. This is what we see unfolding here. They didn't even yet fully understand all that would be on display and all that would happen. But I can't get just that phrase, well, come and see. And Nathaniel, when seeing that Jesus knew what he was doing and knew there was no way for him to know that, to say, you are the Messiah. You are the Lamb of God. You are the King. He called him the Son of God and King. This new title. And then be ready to offer that prayer of faith and to disciple those who are asking. Because I do believe God is always on task. I don't care how biblically illiterate a generation might be, a people group might be. Would you find it hard to believe that God is not? And that he works according to that truth whether they know the Bible or not? That's what you're banking on. When you're sharing faith, when you're talking about Jesus, when you're asking questions about faith, you have to say, well, God, if this is real, then I, I want to know that. I, I want to know that that's real. He'll show up in that question and that request. And he's going to point to Jesus, and he's going to point to the fullness of who he is, and, and then it, it will just be in line. But getting to the place that you just say, okay, if this is real, I want to know. When you hear someone say that, say, oh, that's awesome, me too. Even if you're convinced you already know, say that. Say, me too, because you still want to know. To journey with them and to know that in that call to make disciples, that's what we're called to do is point to Jesus. We're attached to him as a follower, not a fan. We walk with him so that he can use us to walk with them as they go through those questions together. So what we're going to see, he's going to go to this wedding of Cana. We're going to see two extremes. He's going to go to the wedding where his mom is, and she doesn't fully understand. She's got some preconceived notions. You can do anything, Jesus. I mean, you were the perfect child. I don't know how she justified it. Turn water and make some wine for them. And Jesus does turn water into wine, and some very interesting nuances to that. Later in the chapter, he goes to the temple, and he sees this practice that they've been doing for so long where they're exchanging money, people coming from other countries, and they're set up in the temple to, to do that. And, and so they can buy sacrifices, they can do all kinds of stuff, and Jesus said, no, that's not. It wasn't about the sacrifices. It wasn't about having your offering. It was about being a place where you are in relationship with the Father. And he cleanses the temple, it says. Turns over the, the tables. Drives them out. This is to be a place of what? Worship and prayer. 
talking to God. And, and so do you think Jesus is reflecting God's heart accurately? You better say yes. That's a, that's a yes question. He is. Jesus does that. He doesn't make a mistake about what the Father wants. So when he comes in and says, this is the Father's will about this place, is that it's a place of prayer. He knew what he was talking about. These two extremes of interacting with people, where in the wedding he doesn't really reveal all that he is and, and all that it's about, but it says at the end of that, the disciples put their faith in him. I'd missed that before. In verse 11 of chapter 2, it says his disciples, well, I thought they already trusted him. Well, they did. They didn't know what all that meant, but they watched that happen. It says the disciples put their faith in Jesus. At the end of the cleansing of the temple, I don't know, he made a lot of enemies that day. I don't know if anybody started to believe, but we go into chapter 3 where he's, He's in this encounter with Nicodemus. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. A, a religious leader who should have known first and best, and we believe Nicodemus did come to know and believe and trust Jesus as a Savior. But in that moment where he's by night saying, okay, who are you? Jesus says, don't worry about who I am in that sense. You better worry about what I represent. You must be born again. Wow. Those wow moments have to kind of start taking root in us. Changing the way we see not only ourselves, because that's part of what happens here, is that Jesus, when, when, when others are brought to him, it's this change of perspective. Yes, about the way they see him, but then what does that mean for them? And that becomes, that becomes the unpacking of what it means to be given the right to become the children of God by putting our faith in Jesus Christ. I love the way this unfolds for us, <clears throat> as you can probably tell. But I don't want us to get caught in it, either in too many details where we get bogged down or that we fail to see details where we gloss over. And that's always a risk that we run when we, we look at big passages of Scripture. The insights are there, and I'm not claiming to have all of them. But I am amazed at the way God continues to reveal His truth through the person of His Son. Never, if there's the one takeaway from the very beginning, truth, faith, life, grace, the glory of God has a face. It's in a person. God is not asking you to believe in an ideology. He's asking you to put your faith in the person of Jesus Christ. That's what's on display. And Father, we thank you for that promise, that call to come. That, it, that, that indeed to approach a person, to take you at your word and to know that Jesus as the living word is the place where we draw near and draw close. Father, if we've maybe tried to compartmentalize and, and have been a fan at different times or at different places, help us to realize that 
we either are a follower or we're a fan. So, Lord, may we attach ourselves to your truth, to the person of Jesus today, or maybe reattach, and, and not that we won't have struggles, Lord. We know there are places that that, that happens, but it's from the context of being on the field, being attached to you, that we learn to understand how you are working and moving us through those moments, shaping us to be yours. Help us, Father. Lead us, guide us. May you be glorified as we continue in that truth. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 